I hope that if you are listening to this and you have come out of a religious tradition and are now thinking freely, have left that religious tradition behind. And we didn't talk about this enough, but I hope you feel a sense of pride in what you've done. Because I think too often people who have deconverted, who have left religion behind, who have deconstructed, feel a sense of shame. And often that is deliberately imposed on them. But, but what you have done is truly remarkable. There are over 4,000 recognized religions in the world. Which one are you leaving? Why are you deconverting? Welcome to the Deconversion Podcast, where we explore the experiences and challenges of deconverting from religious faith. We are here to discuss and explore this topic and help you on your journey to living an authentic life. Three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a genuine treat for you today, Mr. Andrew Seidel. Andrew, if you don't mind, can we do a little shameless plug? Tell people who you are. Tell them about all these life-changing books that you've written (laughs) and all this fun stuff. Sure. So I'm a constitutional attorney by training, though I try not to write like one. Uh, I'm also an author. I've written The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, which is all about the myth of America as a Christian nation and all the other little sort of sub-myths that uh, get into that lie and disinformation. Uh, And then I I most recently wrote American Crusade, how the Supreme Court is weaponizing religious freedom, which is really about the legal fight that we've been engaged in over the last 10 years on both church-state separation and religious freedom and how the court is destroying both of those principles in an effort to privilege conservative Christians over everybody else. I've got a couple law degrees. I've been in the trenches fighting these fights for more than a decade now. I'm also a contributing I don't remember what my title is. Something over at Religion Dispatches, where I'd write a lot of op-eds, debated Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. Once upon a time, I love to go Mm -hmm. on to networks and chat and radio and talk about this stuff. And in a previous life, I was a Grand Canyon tour guide. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. I did not know that one. (laughs) Yeah, it was was a lot of fun. Really great job. Really great. I often think if I retire, maybe I'll go do that for fun. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure when you're in the mix of it, it, you're like, man, the Grand Canyon sounds really nice right now. (laughs) There are times (laughs) where I just want to run away and go camp at the bottom for a couple of weeks. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. One of the things when I read The Founding Myth, I was somewhat in a state of bewilderment because there was just so much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And there were just so many things that I was wrong about. And one of my questions that I had was, what do you think has happened for us to be, as a society in general, be so disconnected by kind of these philosophies around our government? I think there's been a deliberate attempt to destroy that founding principle and our pride in it. That Really, Christian nationalism has actively tried to gut not just the idea that America was founded uh, with a separation between church and state and not founded as a Christian nation, Um, but to make those principles seem un-American, which is one of the reasons I chose the subtitle I did for the founding Mm -hmm. myth, why Christian nationalism is un-American, because it gets it backwards. There's so much about our constitution that is really unique and original, and all of the things that are unique and original are the secular 
things, right? The, the separation of church and state is an American original. It is an American invention. The, the idea was floating around in the Enlightenment, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. And until then, no other nation in the history of the world had thought to protect the ability of its citizens to think freely by separating religion and government. And the other aspects of our constitution that are also uh, secular contribute to that, right? So our constitution begins, we the people. And, and those words are poetic, but they are so much more. They, they declare that power comes from people, not gods. That, that was, was revolutionary at the time. Yeah. Our constitution was the first constitution in history not to mention a god. And it, it's godless by choice, by design. And in fact, it pissed some people off at the time that it was godless, that it didn't mention a deity or didn't mention Jesus. Mm -hmm. Our constitution was the first to ban religious tests for public office. And it does so in some of the most clear and emphatic language in that entire document, right? Everybody should remember from history class, even if you uh, were in a, maybe a Christian school, like one of the things the founders did was they often left parts of the constitution a little vague and fluffy so that we can, later generations can come along and fix it. They can put meat on the bones that we're laying out. So sometimes the language is really nebulous. But if you look at the language in the religious test ban in Article 6, it says, no religious test shall ever be required for any office or public trust. No shall ever any. That's, that, that's as clear yeah. and emphatic as you can get. And those are the things that are unique and original about our constitution. And I think, I really think those are things that we can be proud of. We can be proud of this American invention, and I think we should, but what we are seeing is a movement to undermine those truths with these myths about a Christian founding, these lies yeah. and this disinformation. It's interesting for me because I was raised in the Christian tradition and evangelicalism and so forth, and I can tell you that like growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, I, looking back on it, could see a shift in the culture of Christianity because I felt like I did get taught a little bit about the importance of separation in church and state, even though I was religious. Mm -hmm. And then there was this shift in evangelicalism that really moved towards this other language of us being founded on Judeo-Christian values, all of that stuff. And you get into all of that stuff in the book. And I felt like there was such a shift to where it feels like rewriting history. And something I find myself trying to, I feel like you capture really good in your book is that separation of church and state is not so it's as much for the protection of Christians as it is for the protection of non-believers and people of any other religion. This is so I can protect your ability to be a Christian. And so I felt so strongly about that. And then when I deconverted, it has just spiraled out into the other out of control mm -hmm. where people just are like, but it says under God on the currency. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, you guys, <laughs> if you only knew if yeah. only there were a book out there. To, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think this is one of the things, one of the pieces, Isaac, that you were asking about that, that it has been one of the, the tactics of the Christian nationalists and of those purveying this disinformation is to treat and portray the separation of church and state as opposed to religion as and as anti-religious. And I think a, lo a lot of the times when you have atheist groups like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which I used to work for, that mm -hmm. are turned around and suing over a display, it, it allows the other side to exacerbate those claims of making it atheism versus Christianity and, yes. and framing the separation of church and state as that. But really it's not. And, and you're, you're absolutely right that the, the, one of the reasons the founders chose to separate church and state was to guarantee religious freedom for everybody. 
You cannot have religious freedom to believe in every God in every holy book or one particular holy uh, God from one holy book or no gods. You can't have any of that freedom if the government can tell you this is how you should pray. Or even if the government can suggest to you that you pray in this way or pray on this day, that still violates your religious freedom. It's a truly secular government is the only protection that we have for religious freedom. The way I like to say it is there is no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. You, you You cannot have that fundamental right without having the secular government as a prerequisite. Yeah, that's awesome. One of the one of the statements that I heard a lot during Roe versus Wade, the overturning of it, was that Christian nationalists were playing the long game, mm-hmm. and that there's this very strategic long game plan in place. And one of my questions that I, I have for you: Do you feel like that statement is true that Christian nationalists are playing the long game, and there is a strategy in place, or are they just stumbling upon this generation? And maybe it looks like it has some order to it, but really it's just a series of unfortunate events. Oh, interesting. I do think they've played a long game. Well, let me talk about it like this. First of all, there have been waves of Christian nationalism throughout American history. And this is something that I talk about in The Founding Myth. And often we see the disfiguring scars from those previous waves of Christian nationalism used to justify and emphasize and promote the disinformation of the new waves of Christian nationalism. And Tim, you already gave a great example of this, right? When people say we're one nation under God and in God we trust, right? Those are disfiguring scars from the 1950s, from the wave of Christian nationalism that crashed over this country in the 1950s. Yeah. And the Red Scare and all that stuff that went down. The Red Scare, and we get the National Day of Prayer and the National Prayer Breakfast, and they put this prayer room in the U.S. Capitol. In God we trust is adopted as the motto, under God is added the blood. All of that is in the first 1951, 1956, basically. And then you have modern Christian nationalists pointing to that saying, see, we were founded as a Christian nation. Fundamentally not true. So that's Isaac. Number one is we definitely have seen waves of Christian nationalism and we've been able to beat them back to the fringes every time. However, the most recent wave of Christian nationalism that we have seen really, they have done a good job of playing the long game. And I think you can actually date it to Brown versus Board of Education, essentially to the, the attempt to desegregate our public schools. And I talk about the long game that the other side has played a lot in my new book, American Crusade, and how that fight to desegregate public schools actually goes directly to the modern fights that we are having right now, including especially the fight over abortion, for instance, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't understand that nexus. um, And it's a really crucial nexus to understand. Essentially, you have these religious leaders who are fighting against segregated public schools and they don't want to be recognized for the racists that they are, right? It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. all of a sudden becoming unpalatable politically to be an open racist. So they're looking around for another issue. You have people like Paul Weyrick, who founds the Heritage Foundation, getting together with Jerry Falwell, who everybody probably knows, and mm-hmm. forming the moral majority and selecting, choosing abortion as the issue that they can use instead of segregation and instead of their open racism. And that is also tied to, it's tied to tax Mm -hmm. exemption for religious schools and tax exemption for churches. There's this really famous case called Bob Jones University, and all of that is tied to private school vouchers. It's this fascinating, terrible sort of swamp kind Mm -hmm. of hate and bigotry that swirls around and from which 
creates the modern Christian nationalist movement. And, and they really did play the long game. And eventually what they did um, was they looked at and targeted the courts. And the reason that they did that is because they knew that their benighted ideology was not popular. It's certainly not popular enough in a democratic society to win out. And it was becoming more and more unpopular by the day. So they actually looked out and I'm just going to get on. No, that's great. No, I was going to say, as you're saying that, I just think about when you said that they're taking it to the courts. I thought about the statement you made at the beginning, the power, we, the people in Mm -hmm. that, that it's almost incorrect. If I'm wrong, there's almost a statement of we're not going to win the people. So let's go win in the court system. 100% accurate. And in fact, so this, this is what I talk about in American Crusade. So Leonard Leo is universally recognized as the guy, the man who orchestrated the hostile takeover of the Supreme Court. And a former employee described Leo's mission like this. He said, quote, he figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception, conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed. So they needed to stack the courts. Isaac, that is exactly what you're saying. That is what they did. They're admitting that it's anti-democratic, right? Look, if we don't Mm -hmm. stack the court, you guys, the majority is going to rule. Democracy is going to work. And we know that Leo's groups spent $540 million packing the Supreme Court from 2014 to 2020. And you don't spend that kind of money to buy an impartial court. They bought a court. They captured the Supreme Court and they've been winning cases before it ever since. And Leo's just this, just one more side, is this really fascinating slash awful figure, very conservative Catholic. Every time he travels, he goes to mass daily. He has an advanced person who charts, who makes sure that he has a church that he can go to everywhere he goes. And he was the monitor of the nominee's ideological purity. That, that was another phrase used to describe oh, wow. his job, the judicial nominees. Yeah. And we know he's responsible for getting Robert, Salido, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett on the bench. And Honor. Thomas is an old friend of his. So yeah, that's the guy who has packed our Supreme Court. See, and I think that this is, I think that there's that side of it. And I think something that's been very hard for me to swallow is that you can sit back and watch some of that happening behind the scenes. I had a rather terse argument with my mom a ways back about being a a single issue voter, being abortion. She disagrees with it. So she's always going to vote Republican. I was like, if that's the case, then you're setting us up for failure because you're going to lead us down this road. But when you watch what's gone on, I watch my parents become people that are like the ends justifies the means because mm-hmm. they turn their blinders on to the fact that the court's getting stacked, who's backing this up, who's funding this kind of stuff and where it's going because they're happy with the outcome, even though the majority of the people don't agree with this. And something Isaac and I have experienced in doing this podcast and talking to people leaving religion people are leaving their religions because they disagree with these issues. Roe v. Wade. Trump era politics, all of these kinds of things, the double gay standards. Yeah. yeah, gay rights. Uh, it's just absolutely insane that's going on. And we keep talking to people that are like, oh, we're out. And this, I think, is probably the number one issue I like to try and bring people up to speed on fast because the other side's not waiting to fight on these issues. No, they're absolutely not. And I, I, one of the things that you're getting zooming down on there, Tim, is that Christian nationalism is inherently anti-democratic. 
the goal of Christian nationalism is to create a country where conservative, cis, white, heterosexual Christian men are a special privileged class and everybody else is second class citizens, where that special favored class is protected by the law, but not bound by it. And everybody else is bound by the law, but not protected by it. Mm-hmm. And that is, they are trying to create an America with privileged white conservative Christians and everybody else. So our country's on fire. Our democracy is not slipping away. It is being stolen. The Republic is being strangled. And, and those of us who share values like equality and justice and truth and fairness, we have to come together to stop the arsonist and the thief and the murderer. And that means fighting Christian nationalism and fighting for an America where the separation of church and state is not just absolute, but valued. And absolutely. America will never be a Christian nation because the moment it becomes a Christian nation, it will cease to be America. Yeah. Right. That those two things cannot peacefully coexist. One of them is going to triumph. And, and that really is the choice that we face as an as a as a nation. Christian nationalism mm-hmm. or America. Because we we genuinely cannot have both. I, I completely agree. I can feel myself just as you're saying this, feeling myself get emotional, get angry, get frustrated, and then immediately hit this feeling of helplessness. And I feel like that's probably something that a lot of listeners that we have will also feel you're obviously like on the front line fighting this and pushing this. And if it wasn't for your book, I I wouldn't be aware of this topic at all. At least it would take something else for me to become aware. But for someone who's listening that maybe is feeling that emotional charge, Mm -hmm. what can the average person do to help uh, in this Christian nationalism versus America, protecting America? Well, first, buy my books. Um, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> shameless, like, I, let's do it. I, shameless plug. I know I know what it's like to live off student loans. Put it on your wish list. Tell your family to get you a copy. Or well, get, it's, it's a great way to come up to speed quick on a lot of things because I do really appreciate you mentioned at the beginning, I try not to write like a lawyer. You don't. It was very engaging and thought-provoking. And so your books are a great way to come up to speed fast. Well, and, and that, that's the reason I jokingly suggested is because <laughs> you need to arm yourself not just with the information, but with the the best arguments that are out there to fight mm-hmm. back against Christian nationalism. And my publisher hates it when I say this, but I also don't care if you buy the book, go to your library, tell your yeah. library to get it. Whatever you do not send copies of the book to Pastor Greg Locke in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pardon me. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, he burned the founding myth with a blowtorch. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. So, but I do, I, the reason I say, again, I think you need to arm yourself with the best information and the best arguments. That's the most important thing, the best arguments, which is what I really try to give people in the founding myth. And then in American Crusade is meant to open your eyes to this threat. Bayard Rustin, great activist, uh, also humanist said that the proof, the proof that one truly believes is in action. And again, not talking about religious belief right there. So I I think you have a duty to act if you understand the threat that Christian nationalism poses, and if you are afraid of it, you have a duty to act. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. I I really recommend that people join Americans United for Separation of Church and State. That's the organization Mm -hmm. I work for. We're a nonpartisan, not-for-profit education and advocacy organization. We bring together people of all religions and none to defend the separation of church and state. And there are many other great organizations out there that are also doing this kind of work. So if AU is not for you, um, and you don't want to go to au.org and join, definitely go join one of those other groups. But the number one thing that I want people to do is to get 
active. And that means politically too. So go to your local government meetings. The Christian nationalists are actively trying to take over basically every school board in the country. Go stand up against them. Run for office. If you are listening to this podcast, like you're probably the kind of person that ought to be thinking about running for office. And if, as I say that, you're thinking, I am not qualified to run for office, Andrew. <laughs> I would just look, <laughs> look at Lauren Boebert. <laughs> like, like, I, I don't know. You are absolutely, that's never held back a, a single Christian nationalist in the history of this country. Uh, right? Marjorie Taylor Her, Green can do it. You can yes. do it. <laughs> yes. So, and I think, I do think educating yourself is the first step, but I think acting is the second step. And I, people often are, they're totally willing to do that first step. And the second step is the one that's scary. So the number one thing I would encourage people to do is, Find a small concrete action that you can take that you are comfortable with and take it to oppose Christian nationalism. Yeah, absolutely. Show up and vote too. I always feel like, yeah, that kind of goes without saying. (laughs) What, what, uh, what was it that made you fight this battle? When did you decide to take this on? And what is your, what keeps the passion going for you? And like you said, you've done multiple podcasts this morning. You got things to do this afternoon and you're mm-hmm. still on here talking to us. What, where does that, that fuel come from? So I went to law school to save the world. Literally. I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I got a concentrated in environmental law. I won an award. I went on to get a second law degree in international environmental law where I was a fellow on that subject. But when I took my first amendment class, I really fell in love with that unique, original American principle, the separation of church and state. I saw what it could do, not just to protect the religious freedom of everybody from the atheist to the the polytheist, but the more I learned about it, the more I realized how powerful the issue was. And I realized something that Christian nationalists and and the other opponents of church-state separation have, have learned long ago that that principle connects to almost every other issue that we care about. Mm. Seriously, like like whatever issues you care about, limiting the power of religion in our government and building up that wall of separation between church and state, which is the only wall we need, is almost a panacea. Almost. Think about it. Do you want better education? Do you want full funding for public schools instead of vouchers for private religious schools? Do you want accurate science about evolution and sex taught in our classrooms? Do you want full civil and political rights for LGBTQ people and women and minorities? Do you want reproductive justice and choice to be fully realized? Do you want a greener world and healthier environment? Do you want America to get serious about global climate change and shun its deniers? Do you want access to better and universal health care? Do you want scientific research to be guided by scientists? Do you want to solve the problems in the Middle East? Do you want our responses to pandemics to be guided by science instead of wishful thinking? You Mm -hmm. end Christian nationalism. You end religious encroachments into government power, and you're going to see progress on every one of those issues. And so I was realizing that more and more as I was going through law school and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with my career. And I got to this personal crossroads where I had graduated law school. I was a practicing attorney for a little while. And I had this opportunity to either build up this environmental law practice in Colorado or go do separation of church and state stuff. And I was going back and forth. And I was talking to my sister about this, needed somebody to to listen. And she was like, where do you think you'll have a bigger impact? I was like, geez, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. And she was like, how many lawyers do environmental law? 
And I was like, oh, there's there's thousands of them and they're smart. And some of them are way smarter than I am and way better than I am. And she said, how many do church state separation? I was like, why? Well, I don't know. And I do know now. And the answer is there's like 15 of us and I know them all. Wow. There's very few of us who are doing this kind of work. She said, it sounds like you'll have a bigger impact there. And she said, and it connects to the other issues you care about. That's what you've been saying. And I was like, yeah. She said, so you'll be helping like with the environmental stuff. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And I, so I went to work at the Freedom from Religion Foundation yep. after that. And um, that was the start of my career in this and uh, have not looked back. Love, love the work. That's the reason I'm able to stay motivated. I, I do think this is the fight of our times. Mm-hmm. I get up every day excited to, to put on the gloves and, and go have this fight. Yeah, that's awesome. How many death threats have you gotten? One, two, three. No, way more than that. Oh, <laughs> we're still waiting for our first death threat. So yeah, no, I've had I've, we've had some serious scrapes in the past. I've had I've been doxxed by Nazis, and especially in the run up when Trump was really getting popular, and I was really speaking mm-hmm. out against him in twenty in this up to twenty sixteen. I was getting yeah straight up Nazis. Like mm-hmm. thre- threatening true. myself, my family, our pets. So it was. How did you navigate that stress? Um, well, one, I mean, you're clear, I'm clearly pissing off the right people. Bravo. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. And the fact that if Greg Locke burns your book with a blowtorch, it's, you're doing something right. Same thing with some of these folks. It's hard sometimes. It's one thing when it's you. It's a very different thing when it's your family. And that that's the part that is you know not something that I'm willing to take lightly. Um, mm-hmm. we, I have, we have a lot of security that I end up paying for out of my pocket, both for online and personally. And mm-hmm in our home and things like that. And it's been better over the last four or five years, but yeah, early it, it, there are scary times, but that's not ever going to stop me. Yeah. And, and I ask the question sometimes in a jokingly manner, but at the same time, it, it does have an impact because the fact that you are navigating this does bring the seriousness of this, that this isn't small coffee table chat, This isn't just sharing opinions. This isn't a a group of people having tea and eating biscuits and doing a book review. This is serious. So serious Mm -hmm. to the point where there are multiple groups of people that have threatened you and your family. And I just think that I hope that brings an element of seriousness to it and may add to that drive to for us to be more proactive. Yeah, I think often the the epilogue for the the founding myth is all about january 6th Mm -hmm. and i did i I watched so many videos um, and listened to so many of the hearings i did so much research for that and it ended up becoming a whole extra report that i did with baptist joint committee and ffrf and a bunch of other experts and there's one that i think about in particular which is the attacker who kicked in speaker pelosi's door they stormed the capitol he was hoping that the crowd would tear her quote into little pieces And during one of his legal hearings, he was quoted as saying, God is on Trump's side. God is not on the Democrats' side. And if patriots have to kill 60 million of these communists, it is God's will. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the attackers believed that this is their country given to them by their God and that they are acting on his orders and defending his chosen one, right? Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. And when reality collides, with a belief system like that, when the reality of math, raw voting numbers and totals, when a reality when reality collides with a belief system like that, I think violence is almost inevitable. Yeah. 
And, and that is that's what we saw happen on January 6th. And that's what we see happen personally. Yeah. I think it's interesting uh, when you contrast, because this is something that I feel like I, I struggle with is I, I get really wary interacting with people who want to float on the middle of the subject because everybody, I know some people personally that will take January the 6th and they will minimize it and say, it's just a few fanatical people and it's this and that. But I, Isaac and I talk a lot about people being on a spectrum. We talk about when it comes to faith, we uh, we talk, we've talked a lot about how one of the dangerous things about religion and why it's one of our primary concerns is that a lot of people have taken their religious faith that they typically would reserve for God, and then they've moved it over into the political sphere, and they follow people like Trump and certain parties, Christian nationalists, with a religious fervor and zeal. Because mm-hmm. my mom is not the kind of person that I think thinks that we need to, we kill 20 million communists or whatever the guy said mm-hmm. so that we can have our country back. But she votes for the same people those people are voting for. Yeah. And when you try and point out the problem of that and the excuses, I get into territory where I'm like, there's no splitting hairs over this because you may feel like you're voting and doing what the Lord wants you to do. I was like, but you put these types of people in power, they're going to be knocking on your door asking you if you believe the right kind of Christianity. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that goes back to the original conversation we were having about separation of church and state protecting everybody. And, what, and it's one of the things that we need to talk about to convince those people mm-hmm. uh, of the value of, of that principle. But you're, you're absolutely right. That is the end result. They understood when they were writing the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Apparently. So something we talk a lot about is religion being the root of the problem. And when we watch a lot of these documentaries that kind of expose some of the ugly underbelly of church organizations, it seems to never really end with people saying religion is the issue. And my question is, do you feel like that was articulated by the public in regards to January 6th? Are people saying, hey, this happened because of religion, or are they just saying this happened because of Trump? Do you think that the idea that religion was the root of January 6th is hit our general consciousness? I'd say not, no, not entirely, not in the way it should have. I think, I think Christian nationalism really did play a central role. And so I mentioned that report that sort of came out of the founding myth. So this was Mm -hmm. basically, I was talking to my publisher after January 6th, and I was saying, I want to write the epilogue all about January 6th. And I need more than whatever. I think they were going to give me like 2000 words for the epilogue. I was like, I need like 20,000 words. The, the book is like 90,000 words. So they're like, no, Andrew, stop. You're being ridiculous. So I had all this other stuff and I, I just kept finding more and I wanted, I needed to get it out there so that people could understand the role it played. So I called up Amanda Tyler at the Baptist Joint Committee. I said, Amanda, what do you think about doing a report on this? We like it. This story needs to be told. I agree. I knew she'd been talking about it too. So we got together a bunch of experts and we published this report that details the role that Christian nationalism played in the, the insurrection. And we have all these experts, Catherine Stewart, Jamar Tisby, Anthea Butler, uh, Sam Perry, Andrew Whitehead, and myself, and then Amanda Tyler writing about the role that it played from different perspectives. And, and the, the way that I like to frame it for people is I, I, I say that Christian nationalism created a permission structure that gave the insurrectionists the moral and mental license that they needed to attack our government and attempt to overturn a free and fair election. You don't just overturn 
an election on a whim. You, you have to believe deeply that what you are doing is not just right, but righteous. And, and that, that's the, it's the extra piece that it's not, believing the big lie is not just enough. It ha- you have to go the one, you have to have, I think, that religious element to get people to attack the beating heart of American democracy. Even if we didn't know that intellectually, the evidence that they gave us is overwhelming and it's indisputable oh, and it's yeah. clear. The attackers told us loudly and repeatedly what they believed and why it justified the attack. They told us about their Christian nationalism. And to your point, Isaac, I think we, we ought to listen to them because if we ignore the ideology that justified this attack in their minds, we are inviting future attacks. And so after we published the report, the January 6th committee actually reached out to us, each of the contributors, and said, we'd love you to submit written testimony on what you wrote about. So we all submitted written testimony. And they cited some of my testimony in the report itself. But overall, they really went out of their way to minimize the role that Christian nationalism played mm-hmm. in the attack. And they minimized it in the report. And it was almost certainly done for political reasons. Now, if you talk to, again, people who were on the ground or listen to the attackers, it's pretty clear the role it played. I, so for the report, I spoke to Luke Mogelson. And Luke Mogelson is a war correspondent who he shot that viral video, that the New Yorker video footage from that day. Where he's the one who captured the prayer in the Senate. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So he's like literally there with the insurrectionists as a photojournalist, like documenting this. And I interviewed him about that and, and got a bunch of other footage from him too about, about that day. And I interviewed him about the Christian nationalism and, and he explained it to me like this. And I, I include this in the report if people want to go read it. He said, quote, the Christianity was one of the surprises to me in covering this stuff. And it mm-hmm. has been hugely underestimated. Christian nationalism that you talk about is the driving force and also the unifying force of these disparate players. It's really the Christianity that Mm -hmm. ties it all together. Yep. I would ask you this, because this is a common thing I would come across Mm -hmm. and what you would say to it, because I have my own thing that I have in my head, but maybe you've got something better, but I encounter people because I have Christians all around me. I have people who are conservative that are around me all the time. We're in Texas, so it's inevitable. But what would you say to some the people who play the minimizing game? And they're like, oh, that was just a handful of really stupid people and they're getting what they get. It wasn't that big of a deal. And it wasn't this because I got that from my parents. I had a horrible falling out with them over it. Mm -hmm. I get it from some of my close friends. And one of the things that I've always put out there, I was like, dude, sometimes it's as simple as flip, put the shoe on the other foot. Because I grew up during the Obama presidency with people around me telling me he won't leave office. He won't leave office. He's going to solidify his power. He's going to stay. He's going to do this. And I'm at the point where I'm ready to cry wolf on all these people because they say this, they're going to take away your guns. It never happens. Here's an instance where the other person did what I had heard them say the other side was going to do. We have the whole January 6th thing, and then they downplay it. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I was like, if this was the other side, you guys would be in the streets with pitchforks. Yeah, it's first of all, the thing that I'm the first thing that I'm thinking of is how so much of what you see from the MAGA, the Christian nationalist, the Trumpist crowd Mm -hmm. is projection. Yes. Right. You know, you know what I mean? That's the first yeah. thing there's it's not to your point. Uh, I, I just it's remarkable how so much of what they do is 
what they say is what they would do if they could get away with it, right? That's yes. like what that's like what they want. I mean, the the other thing though, I, I a lot of people did recognize how big a deal January sixth was when it mm-hmm. happened. I think you could probably, if you were really like in an individual debate with somebody, you might even be able to check their social media and see if they said something they have, which mm-hmm. would be fun. But this was an attempt to overturn the will of we the people. It was an attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which has been the hallmark of American democracy since the founding, right? That is, you want to talk about making America great again? That is the thing that made America great. Mm-hmm. We, we have been one of the few continuous democracies in the world where power has been peacefully transferred time and time again since the founding. That's, yeah, it that's it's, it's another thing that really does truly make us remarkable. And it, it starts the tradition starts with George Washington refusing to seek a third term, really, in a way, yeah. right? Like he, he could have been king if he wanted to, and instead yeah. he doesn't do it. And we've done it in despite of horrible disagreements with one another. Yes. And it's still taken place peacefully. Yes. And you know, that Biden received something like like I don't remember the exact number, 80 million votes, right? This was an attempt not just to to stop that peaceful transfer of power, but to say that those 80 million people's votes do not matter, do not count. It was an attempt to disenfranchise more than half the country. Right? Yep. That is what they were trying. And that, that, by the way, is also at the heart of Jack Smith's latest indictment of Donald Trump. Absolutely. But that's just a witch hunt, Andrew. That's yes, just yes. that. That's just that the, that's just the government being weaponized, trying to persecute, yeah. persecute them, which in a real twist of irony for me is exactly what I felt like Trump was trying to do. The attorney general is a Trump appointee. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the, and this investigation that's going after him, I'm like, so what happened? I grew up around, I've got family that's in law enforcement and, you know, back the blue and all of that kind of stuff. And I've grown up around people that put a lot of faith in our justice system. And our justice system is prolific in its, a lot of them are conservative. And here we go where we've got this guy getting prosecuted, guy being Trump. And now the excuse rollout, my dad was furious about Trump getting prosecuted by Matt Smith. It's all the government going after him. So again, I'm struggling with because it seems like the pragmatism that I feel like we ought to be approaching our government with and the rule of law and that kind of stuff is getting thrown out the window in favor of religious belief in the party you're affiliated with. And I get accused of being liberal and I feel like I'm more of a a middle of the ground kind of person, independent, if you will. But I just think that is asinine. I cannot believe people are doing this. And I feel like they're going to throw away their own rights and all of our rights at the same time if we go down these roads. I mean, they are, but that goes, it goes back to the anti-democratic, that that Christian nationalism is inherently anti-democratic. Yes. And if you look around and there's so many times where you want to just like gesture and be like, what is all of this? What's going on? (laughs) Gesture to everything, right? And it is, why are they on this crusade to weaponize religious freedom? Why are we seeing this rise in Christian nationalism? And I think that question is the, the why is absolutely crucial. And I talk about this in both of the books. And I, I think it is because 
of, of the people listening to this podcast, right? Because the nuns, the non-religious Americans are on the rides because Americans are leaving religion behind because we elected our first black president and our first black female vice president because of marriage equality, because every day we are closer to racial and gender and LGBTQ equality. And because they are so used to seeing only a narrowed world that reflects their straight, white, conservative Christian patriarchy, right? And that mm -hmm. the existence, let alone the equality of anyone else threatens them. Why are we seeing this crusade? Why are Christian nationalists doing this? I think it's largely a backlash against equality realized. I think you're right. What was the line, what? Isaac, that was like equality for the, I'm drawing oh, a blank. To the privilege, equality feels like suppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, we know this too. So the conservative white Christian American status as the dominant group is threatened. And, and it has been for some time. They're losing the quote culture wars, which I think is a silly phrase that's meant to mask attacks on human rights. As we, we mentioned earlier, their benighted ideas and ideology are unpopular. They're losing the power and the privilege and the deference, which they believe they're due. And we know this, this is do documented sociological phenomenon. We know that when a dominant group or caste in a society feels threatened or feels mm -hmm. left behind by circumstances, that it reacts, or, or to be more accurate, it overreacts by seeking a way to retain that status. Yes. And, and that is why we're seeing them turn to Christian nationalism. That's why we're seeing them turn to violent insurrection, to tearing down democratic norms to these so-called strongmen. And it really is... Isaac, you're right. Parity is not oppression. Equality, even when it means the erosion of privilege, is not discrimination or oppression. And I think as we realize the aspirational values that are implicit in we the people and equal justice under law and other founding maxims, as we recognize that humans, all humans, are human and worthy of rights, conservative white Christian America is dying this slow demographic death and it's rebelling. They, they, they are raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declare war. Yeah. 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 So we have a, a few more minutes. To miss. So mm -hmm. whenever we started this project and we got this going, we've had just the privilege of just talking to so many people. And when you talk to uh, enough people in the demographic, you start to notice trends. And mm -hmm. one of the trends is that there's almost this like education for people who are deconverting. This is like your top five books that you need to read. And there's mm -hmm. like the God delusion and deconverted and Seth Andrews stuff. And in that, yeah, Seth is awesome. In that collection is the founding myth. Okay. And I've been told about the founding myth by numerous people. There's a group chat that we're a part of that, that just went on a rampage about your book. It's almost like a, it feels like a cult following of reading this book, but I don't, and the reason why I said all of this is to say that it's exciting that you have the second book come out that not mm -hmm. uh, many people might know about quite just yet or haven't read it. So I was hoping we could just end this with you sharing some of the information about your second book and what motivated you to write it and how's it different than the founding myth. And that way people are excited to add it to their repertoire. Yeah, I'd be happy to. The dedication of American Crusade is... To all the Christian nationalists out there in America, we're not coming for your rights. We're coming for your privilege. Mm. So that's the dedication. Big difference. Of, yes. <laughs> so that's American crusade, how the Supreme Court is weaponizing religious freedom. And when I say that they are weaponizing religious freedom, I'm not being hyperbolic or trying to fear monger precisely that. Because in case after case, 
they are litigating the legal meaning of religious freedom as a constitutional right. And in the process, they are redefining it. Mm-hmm. They're perverting the meaning. So you have these crusaders groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and First Liberty Institute and Liberty Council, the sort of Orwellian word salad of yeah. these crusader groups, right? And if you look at what they're doing, that their religious freedom, I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. on an audio medium, religious freedom <laughs> challenges are superficially about Christian crosses and veterans or about playgrounds and skinned knees or about private school vouchers or bakeries and website designers and gay weddings or about coaches that just want to pray. But when you really look under the hood and then find the true stories about what happened in those cases, they're about privilege and supremacy. They're, they're literally about privileging the right kind of conservative Christian over everyone else. They're about what we've been talking about. The goal is to use religious freedom to elevate conservative Christianity above the law. So that is the story that I tell in American Crusade, the story of this decades long campaign to forge that weapon. And I genuinely do not believe that you can understand what is happening in this country without understanding this attack. And again, I've lived these cases, right? This fight has been my whole career. I've litigated some of the cases in the book. I've briefed others. I've been on the front lines defending our country from this assault. So American Crusade tells the true stories behind the Supreme Court cases that make up this crusade. And I promise you, all of you, if you like the founding myth and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know any of this, whatever you think you know about what happened in those cases, there is so much more. You know, the, the legal media prizes balance over truth mm-hmm. and it treats all of the players, including the crusaders, as genuine and honest and fair minded. But the crusaders are none of those things. They're on a religious mission to secure supremacy under the law. So, one of the things I really am proud of in the book, which you already mentioned, Tim, which I so appreciate, is that I don't. First of all, I don't just recite the facts as the Supreme Court does, because that's a disaster waiting to happen. And the court often manipulates the facts and the law to reach a desired outcome. And in fact, last, it's unbelievable. Uh, In that case of the coach imposing his prayers on other people's kids, the court actually adopted what lower court judges repeatedly warned was a, quote, deceitful narrative of the case. Mm -hmm. So in American Crusade, I, I, I dug deeper. I interviewed the people involved in the cases. I scoured the dusty archives and other records for photos and videos and audio so I could tell everybody what really happened so that you could learn the truth about what really happened. And I think that sometimes we legal professionals, we get, we get buried under legalese and civil procedure and judicial philosophies and levels of scrutiny and precedence. And sometimes we hide behind them. And I, I often think it's better to shed all of that nonsense and get back to basics. Uh, to Mm -hmm. cut through the jargon and the case names and even the tests. So I wrote American Crusade so that everyone can understand the threat that we face and and see just how radical and dangerous this Supreme Court and these crusaders truly are. That's that's awesome. Man, you're a busy man, and we (laughs) want to be respectful (laughs) of your time. I have here in my little notes like 50 questions, and I got three. But man, it's also because I'm a lawyer and you've given me a captive audience. This is my dream come true. I no, I I love it, man. I genuinely love it. And I don't know if the listener feels this way. I'm training right now for a company and I'm like, what am I doing? I need to go run for politics. And Just this podcast alone is inspiring me to to go good. take action and thrilled to so, hear that. Yeah, I I hope it does that for a lot of the same people. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for being on this podcast and we appreciate it. 
shall we ask him our final question? Oh, we ask yeah, all we, of our guests. <laughs> yeah, we ask all of our guests this final question. What do you hope this podcast uh, does for the people who are listening to it? I hope that if you are listening to this and you have come out of a religious tradition and are now thinking freely, have left that religious tradition behind. And we didn't talk about this enough, but I hope you feel a sense of pride in what you've done. Because I think too often people who have deconverted, who have left religion behind, who have deconstructed, feel a sense of shame. And often that is deliberately imposed on them. But, But what you have done is truly remarkable. To have the intellectual courage and fortitude not just to question your beliefs, but to then pull that thread and follow wherever it goes. That takes a tremendous amount of courage. And, and I am, I've not had to do that in my life. I was fortunate in that I was not raised in a religious tradition. So I've never had to do anything like deconvert. And I don't know if I would have had the intellectual fortitude or the courage to do that. And I stand in awe of people who do. So if you are one of those people and you're listening to this, I hope you feel at least some modicum of pride in what you've done because it really is amazing. Awesome. awesome. Thank you Mike Andrew, so much. Yeah, no, <laughs> God, it's great. Uh, Thank you for so all the work you do. And we appreciate you coming on with us. Maybe we'll get you on again sometime. Yeah. If you want to do that, we can, I'm sorry. You didn't get to all your questions, Isaac. Uh, it's yeah, all, no, I just, no, it's fantastic. And I'm not worried about the, the questions. I just was trying to purvey the message that you're full of knowledge and I appreciate um, that. just really encourage people to listen to you. Yeah, man, you're changing the world. We're excited for you. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm, we'll, we'll, I'll try to come back on sometime again then. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Cool. All, right, All right, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so you. much. Have a great day. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Deconversion Podcast. We're so happy you joined us. Please like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode.